Uh, but the, the yak cheese that we found was kind of, it kind of looked like bits of coral and it oh. had absolutely no moisture, it can, but it still had like yak hair in it and, oh. and you'd eat it. It, had, it kind of tastes like baby vomit, if I'm <gasps> honest, but... But it's protein. It's fat and protein and if you're stuck at negative 30 and all the roads are shut because you're snowed in... You're going to eat it. You're going to eat it. Yeah. Hi. And welcome to The Soft and Curious with me, Jessica Lay. Hopefully, some of these conversations can inspire thoughts and ideas that can potentially have the power to change your mind on a subject or change your entire experience of this life. Now on to the show. As the name of this podcast suggests, we are a curious bunch over here. And so for this episode... We get curious about cheese with my friend and foodie expert, Sam Studd. For many of us, I guess cheese's allure lies in its rich history, diverse textures, complex flavors. Its artisanal craftsmanship has made it a beloved culinary delight worldwide. But while I love cheese, honestly, I have a confession and that is I'm no foodie. I love to eat, but I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to really noticing food or retaining any food information. (laughs) I have so many friends who are foodies. I've just managed to ride on their coattails wherever I am and I get to eat all the best things, but I don't really know anything about those things. So I'd like to know more. And I learned a lot talking to Sam. Sam and I have been friends for years. He's one half of the stud siblings. He lives up here in Byron, where I live too. I remember first floating the idea of a pod with him when I met up with him in Paris last year, and he was so encouraging. Sam works closely with his sister Ellie, and together, under the guidance of their dad, Will Stud, they've carved out a distinguished expertise in cheese. In my wide-ranging chat to Sam, we talk about his career spanning two decades, his discerning palate, his insightful historical knowledge, and he's got this expertise on what cheese is a real crowd pleaser. We also hit my favourite part, which is the most recent far-flung place he's gone in search of cheese. I hope you enjoy this soft and curious conversation with Sam Stout. Hi, Sam. Hello. I am going to firstly ask you, mm-hmm. how would you describe your job? <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, um, it's a multifaceted job. Um, so essentially, I work in a family business, and what we do is we hand-select cheeses from around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only select, um, we only work with family-run businesses, which is similar to ours, so not tiny production, but not massive uh, industrial production, and the concept or the ethos of our company is that we want you to pick up one of our products and know that it's the best cheese within that class. Yeah. Um, So essentially sourcing is one of my jobs, and then I do a lot of the sales and education Mm -hmm. and uh, customer fronting as well. Because your dad is Will Studd, who is an English-born cheese specialist. Yes. And I'm just going to look at this. International cheese specialist and master of cheese. He's born in England, but he lives here in Byron. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting story in itself. So Will is obviously my father, um, and he <clears throat> kind of fell into the cheese game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so post, I think it's early 70s, I'm, my timeline might be a little bit off, so apologies in advance, but essentially he studied. you think you aged him or what? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's been working in cheese for 40 years, so that yeah. should be sort of somewhat of a gauge. Mm-hmm. 
but essentially what happened was that, and this is a, this is a shortened version, um, is that he went to Leeds University to study finance, finance and economics. Mm -hmm. And then when got a corporate job and fucking hated it as most people do mm. or would, uh, and ended up stacking shelves at a local delicatessen and got the opportunity to, uh, take over the deli. Mm -hmm. and always had a passion for food. And then that sort of hit was his introduction into sourcing and building up customer relations, uh, building up um, supplier relationships. Yeah. And I think he had, might've got the numbers wrong or inflated them, but I think he had, I'm just going to go with the number 12. It's either more or less than that, uh, shops, uh, in London, all around London. And he used to select, uh, really got into, um, uh, British cheeses and, but would sell everything like caviar. Lady Di used to come in and buy an egg salad. <gasps> oh salad my sandwich. God. Okay. This is going to be low key. My goal on this, every episode of this podcast is get Princess Diana mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty great. Wow. What did she buy? Egg, egg salad sandwich. Oh. Apparently. Uh, you've got me distracted. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, that really introduced him into cheese and, and, and the finer things, especially all things food. And then. Actually, my mum fell pregnant with my older sister and my mum's Australian and mm. didn't want to bring up a kid in the UK. So they decided to migrate to Australia. And then from that, that's where sort of the cheese, I'd almost call it an empire, the, che the cheese yeah. business started because there was nothing here. When he arrived in like the early 80s, it was like block cheddar, young, medium and old. Like bigger, not no shade to bigger or anything like that, but yeah, no, just like your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just like your standard supermarket cheeses. Cause we are so yeah. far away. Well, I think the Australian dairy industry and especially the cheese industry was uh, revolutionized by Mr. Kraft after the second world war. Mm -hmm. So Australia's agricultural industry is primarily based off industrial practices, mm -hmm. which is great. Like you, people forget like post-world war there was food rations and there wasn't a lot of food. So mm -hmm. if you can industrialize ch food production, that means everyone can eat. We tried to do this podcast last week. Yep. But you were unavailable. <laughs> yeah. Because you were in... India. India, in the hills, on a motorbike. Mm. For how long? Well, I cut it a little bit short. So I went away with two of my really good friends, uh, Zach O'Connor, who is a teacher up in Arnhem Land. Mm-hmm. And another friend of mine, Sam Chernside, who's a graphic artist. If you haven't looked him up, you should. Shout out to him. Yeah. Um, and we'd kind of been conceptualizing this trip for, or talking about this trip for the last two, two and a half years. And we, we went up to the northern region of India in a place called Ladakh, which is on the border of Tibet, Pakistan, and China. Mm -hmm. It's not a heavily beaten tourist trail. It's pretty highly mi uh, militarized. Which um, military? The Indian, Indian military, military, because yeah. it, because it's facing Pakistan and uh, China. Uh -huh. uh, and we went there and we had this romantic idea of riding our motorbikes through the Himalayas for 14 days. But after 10 days, we it turns out it was quite difficult. <laughs> What's the, what is it? Is it hot, cold? What's the temperature it, at the moment? The, it's just that we're about, four, uh, I think we fly into Lay, which is about four and a half thousand meters above sea level. Mm -hmm. um, so I was actually okay, but the other boys were a bit sensitive to the altitude. Yeah. And it just made everyday tasks quite difficult. But the landscapes were fascinating. Mm. Um, we did all our research through YouTube. <clears throat> There's a lot of like Indian YouTubers that have, that, that go on this motorbike trail. Oh, cool. Um, so we sort is of had it safe? Like, <laughs> uh, like if there's a big military presence, like oh, like it? it's it's safe, well, relatively safe politically. Um, the roads are pretty, 
uh, outrageous. Mm. You know, like you look over the side and they'll be like, um, oh. buses all crushed up and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's rel- we found it relatively safe. It's, it's a pretty unbeaten path, as I said, for Westerners. Like the rest of India, I feel like is pretty well explored. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. Freezing cold, boiling hot. It's everything. So like the because you we we got to about seven thousand meters above sea level, mm. and so even if it's freezing, you still get like I look like I've got a tan now. I know you do. But that's from that's from wind chill and everything else. I love motorbikes. I think it's a great way. There's a lot of self reflection because you're kind of encapsulated in your helmet, mm. and you can't listen to. Or I guess you could listen to something, but you, there's a lot of self reflection, and I don't know. It, I did not to get too spiro. About no, it. but um, it would be. It would have been a pretty spirit. I reckon, like places like that, and especially with those big, wide open landscapes, you can't help but be like a bit like spiritually reflective, right? Yeah, it felt like a different planet. Like up there, like the the landscapes, almost like Mars like. Yeah. The, there's very low vegetation, big open plains, and then there's these giant lakes. Mm. Yeah, the landscape there is fascinating. I'd never, I'd never seen anything like it. Is it a lot of people around? Like, I mean, India's so. No, I guess India is always pretty intense and it really teaches you patience and, and sort of a bit of reflection. If you get upset by the small things, you'll mm. go insane. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of people on the road. There's a lot of trucks and a lot of military. So you'd be driving around like tanks and anti-aircraft oh. missiles and stuff like that. Wow. But you can't take any photos of them. So. Yes. Oh, okay. You can't? Well, like... no, because it's, they, they, they arrest you if you do that. And there's military checkpoints the whole way around. We had a romantic idea that we'd be camping on the side of the road, but it, um, that that wasn't really an option. Um, yeah. And also just with the amount that we could carry. So there's like homestays that you can stay in. Amazing stars, probably a night and stuff. like. Amazing stars. But to be honest, we'd go to bed at like 7.30 every night. Oh. So it's so exhausting. How very unlike you. <laughs> yes. It was a reflective experience. I, don't, I think we kind of were running on adrenaline for such, such high adrenaline for most of it that we actually, so we're meant to be, Traveling for the 13 days and we cut it short. We actually hit all the points that we wanted to. Mm. And then the, like, it didn't really hit us until like two or three days after. And to be honest, I only got back two days ago. So I'm still processing it, I think. Yeah. Probably still be a bit lagged. Yeah. A little bit. But I guess the million dollar question for you is was there any cheese? (laughs) Yeah. uh, We went up. Yeah. We did find cheese. Um, So they have yak cheese up there. Yeah. Yak is like a weird animal that's endemic to that area. That pretty. What hard. is a yak? Is it a? Is it like? I'm. I'm sorry. Is that a dumb question? But like. No, because it. Is it the a cow? Truth is, I don't really know the true answer to that because it's kind of a cow, but it's kind of not. Okay, like a buffalo. Yeah, it's kind of in between. Uh, look. <laughs> look, David Attenborough. I invited you on this part. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a, it's an animal that's endemic to the Himalayas that has been used for sustenance for thousands of years. Yeah, and they're pretty unruly. Like they're not like a cow, or they'll come up and show any affection. They'll like they'll charge you. So the yak cheese is like from wild yaks, or is it? From... No, they're domesticated in the sense that they herd and they still engage in like the, in the winter months or in the lower pastures, and then <clears throat> excuse me, as the snow melts, they'll graze up to the top, and they're yeah. uh, domesticated by nomadic tribes. Oh wow! Uh, the cheese making process is pretty limited. One of the really interesting things about cheese in India is that they're the biggest consumers of dairy in the world, and they produce the most amount of milk in the world. Really? Yep. Uh, but they're limited in the scope of what cheese they can make because of religion. So because they're Hindu, they can't eat cow 
And so you need uh, the most most cheeses that you get in Europe are made with um, the fourth chamber of the animal stomach, okay, uh, which is called rennet. Um, but if you don't have access to rennet because of religious reasons, it means that you can't make that that many different styles of cheese. So most so, so they have paneer. It's it's all like fresh curd cheeses. They can't make hard cheese. I'm just trying to think when you say like they're the biggest consumers of dairy. Like what? I guess they have yogurt. Yogurt, paneer, um, it's like all their cooking is based around milk. Oh, right. And, and ghee. Yeah. So did you, you found these tribes people? And we... I, did, I did find them. It took seven days and it was... Because up... they're nomadic. Like where were you looking? Well, you just... they're nomadic, but it was in the... So the snow had melted. So they do have encampments and then they, they roam around because mm-hmm. there, there isn't that much pasture land. So they have like a base, but then they'll walk around. What were these people called? So it's a nomadic tribe called the Changpa tribe. Uh, they're semi-nomadic, so they do have uh, fixed dwellings, but yeah. they do um, go away chasing different pastoral lands because there isn't, there, there's not much up there because nothing grows. Yeah, like they can't, can they farm? They can't farm. Like the wind surely, like and it would be dusty, right? Well, it gets a negative thirty there in the winter, so that, Celsius. And, yeah, and that it's about. That where we found them is about six and a half thousand meters above sea level. So there's mm-hmm. like there's there's fuck all vegetation there. Wow. Um, so they're nomadic in their partial grazing practices, but they in the winter they need to come back down. So the idea is that when they have a seasonal flush of milk, they'll collect it. They essentially just make a lactic set cheese, and then they dry the shit out of it, and then they eat it. To be honest, it's not particularly tasty, but. <laughs> To bring it back to cheese, like cheese is, is made out of necessity and it's a, it's a sustained nutrient source. So if you think about it, like the whole cheese making process is essentially extracting moisture or water yeah. out of milk allowing, and allowing you to eat it yeah. at a later date. So that's exactly what they're doing. They're sustaining their, themselves through the winter through this nutrient source. Yeah. What does it look like? Like is it? A block. So, so there's different types. So all throughout, like the most popular ones that people see would be in Nepal where they, they, they have quite a lot of yaks and mm. they put like yak butter in their tea and it's a way that they sustain themselves throughout the day and give them an energy source. Mm. Uh, but the, the yak cheese that we found was kind of, it kind of looked like bits of coral and it oh. had absolutely no moisture, it can, but it still had like yak hair in it and, oh. and you'd eat it. It, had, it kind of tastes like baby vomit, if I'm <gasps> honest, but... But it's protein. It's fat and protein. And if you're stuck at negative 30 and all the roads are shut because you're snowed in. You're going to eat it. You're going to eat it. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Actually, I was watching an interview with your dad mm-hmm. and it was they were in some somewhere in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And I think they were doing, I think it was, it was like wild elk or something. Yeah. Um, and it was like the most expensive cheese. Like, actually, let me just have a look because I... I remember watching it and I was like, oh, um, it was the most expensive cheese cheese, and it was from wild moose. Oh, and yeah, I've never tried that. Yes. But he was, you know, because I feel like not just in the hills of, you know, somewhere in India, mm-hmm. but like I feel like people would give you cheese to try or just food to try on your travels yeah. and you have to diplomatically kind of given opinion on it but like what if you don't like it like if you you know because I remember your dad in this interview he was like that didn't taste as bad as what I thought it would like that was his diplomacy and then he was like it's interesting I was about to say (laughs) that the the tagline when like because we like because even when I give cheese talks and stuff like that people will do their home cheese making you know sometimes it's good and sometimes it's Oh, to bring to you to yeah, try. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. sometimes it's good and sometimes it's awful. 
But like the fallback line is always like, oh, wow, it's really interesting. <laughs> that get you out of trouble and then you can sort of spit it. Yeah, yeah. Because you wouldn't, yeah, you don't want to upset them because, you know, it takes months, doesn't it? Like, well, it depends some. on what you're making, but you just don't want to upset people in general, really. Yeah. Like if you can get, a, if you can dart around it and just be like, oh yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, true. Um, well, you brought some stuff for us to try. Yeah. What did you bring? Well, I actually brought you stuff to take home. Oh, so well, I uh, thank you. We, I can talk you through them if you like, or do you just want to try the one. I'll try one. Just give me one. What have you brought? You brought the halloumi. Um, I've, you've given me that before. That's so good. Fried. Fried. Yeah. So I brought you some the Conkron butter from Normandy, which is made in a bird of brat, a handmade halloumi from Cyprus, and then a really stinky Normandy camembert. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you about camembert? Yes. Can you do? Yes. I, I was like, that's put the it down one I want. I don't know if that makes okay, sense. yeah. Um, I'll ask you a few questions. How about that? Yes. What Can you tell me the difference between brie and camembert? No. I honestly, I've asked you here today because I, I like eating cheese. It's like wine. I just, I do not absorb food information. Like I don't even know the difference between a calorie or a kilojoule, like to that point, or taste or anything, because I just don't. It just, it's not like fashion or movies or like the Kardashians or something where like all information <laughs> sticks in my brain. Like I, I'm sure someone's told me, but I don't know. I think. I, well, I think food. Like there's a lot of assumed knowledge, which is due to your past experience and the reality is mm. for me I've been surrounded by good food and especially cheese since yeah. I was born so like it's my job to demystify the world of cheese to you yes well no I don't know the difference between brie and camembert all right do you know which one came first no I, I'm gonna just guess and say camembert it sounds older no <laughs> no <laughs> so brie was the was the original cheese um it's from the Ile-de-France region which is a 150 kilometer radius around Paris mm-hmm. it used to be made by peasants and by monks or, or, or the monasteries and any excess cheese that they had they would transport into the Parisian markets and between sheets of hay okay. and then sell them to the general public uh, during the French Revolution, they decided that uh, religion was a terrible idea mm. and they started beheading all the monks. And as you can imagine, if you saw your mate's head get, head get cut off, you'd probably be like, fuck this, I'm out. Yeah. And one of the monks was um, running away from Paris during the Revolution and uh, was passing through the town of Normandy, which is about a three-hour drive from Paris. It's a bloody yeah. long way because they wouldn't have cars back then. Um and a lady called Marie Harrell, well, this is how the story goes, hid the monk in her annex, and in exchange for his saviour, he showed her how to make the brie-style cheese. So essentially, brie and camembert are exactly the same recipe. Well, mm. pretty much the same recipe, but it's a different tour. But camembert really didn't start to hit its stride um, until the industrialization of France. Because as, as you can imagine, if you're drawing everything by horse and cart, it's going to take a long time, and anything perishable would yeah. not make it to um, would not make it to the Parisian market. So when they when they had the industrialization of France, they built a train network, and suddenly the Norman um, area had access to the Parisian markets. And Normandy's beautiful; it's like by the ocean, big green rolling hills, and the yeah. pastoral grazing land and the biodiversity is fantastic. Um, but they needed a way to transport the cheese. So what they did is they got these wooden boxes, which this cheese has here, uh, which were traditionally used by the chemists. That's where you'd get like your herbs when you had the the flu or whatever. Yeah. Actually, the flu would probably kill you back then, but, you know, that's how you yeah, get yeah. Yeah. When you had, like, I don't know, probably syphilis or something. Like, yeah. That's what they all had yeah. in, back in France, didn't they? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they put it in these uh, wooden boxes 
wrapped it in a wax paper and then sent it off to the Parisian markets to take um, to take advantage of that. But what's really interesting, and one of the things I do love about Camembert when you look at the history of it, is that it's the first soft surface ripened cheese, and I can explain what that is later if you like, um, that you that you could advertise on. So rather, like, instead of just like looking at a cheese and be like, oh, I'm going to pick that one, that one looks good, you could stick a sexy label on it and you buy it on the label. Oh. Yeah, it was a way to identify which farm, which producer that you liked. So this one is a cheese that we work with. It's made by family for us. Um, it's the closest thing that you'll get to a raw milk camembert without being raw milk. So this is cow's milk. Yeah. Yes. And can camembert only be made from cows? It should, yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. It depends on who you talk to, but yeah. Oh, really? I know. There's a bit of snootiness in the cheese world where, like, I noticed that when I was researching a little bit <laughs> for this. Like, people are very, oh, it looks really good. Um, People are very, like, you know, the rules or, like, there's purists and then there's. I, so one of the, we can talk about this later, but gonna, one of the things I'm that. I'm going to sniff it. He's handing me some cheese for those of you that can't watch right now. This is like, Yum. it stinks. Mm, it smells like um, rot, um, rotten cauliflower. Oh my god, it does! But it's oh in, my in, god, it does in like a good way. And get like a the whole bunch of umami. It that is so true. Isn't that weird? How something can smell like something else, but it's completely. For me, it's a little bit like kimchi. Like the first time you try it when you're young, you're like, what is this? Mm. This is gross. And then the next, like, in the next two weeks, you're like, I'm putting it on your toast. (laughs) Yeah. Do you reckon? Because now I eat all the things. Like, I Mm. eat olives, I eat liver, like, I eat, you know, all the things I wouldn't have eaten when I was a kid. Mm. But do you reckon your taste buds have to die a little bit for you to. No, not at all. I think a lot of it has to do with what you're exposed to when you're younger. Mm. And I think it can be really challenging for adults to expand their palate. Mm. Uh, but my thing is to go with what you like, especially when it comes to cheese. So like one of the things that we talk about often is like identify what you like and then build upon it. And then the other thing that we always say is like have an affair with the, with the, um, with someone at a cheese counter. Uh, oh, that's so you- a good idea. There was a, you know what, when I lived in England, there was, um, and Whole Foods in Kensington had a yeah, cheese like room. One. Yeah. And there was the hottest cheese guy in there. And we'd go in and we'd just eat, like, because we were so poor. Like, we were yeah. broke. We had no business being in Whole Foods. Like, yeah. like, my girlfriend, one of my girlfriends and I. But we'd had no jobs, really. So, like, we wouldn't get booked on jobs or whatever. So we'd just walk in there and, like, it was the only way we could eat fancy food was to go to Whole Foods and eat all there. I love Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah. And there was a hot cheese guy. And I reckon I, at the time, probably knew more about cheese then because I was just trying to, like... T- pick up what he was telling me, but it yeah, was delicious. Having an affair with a cheese mug would yeah. be the best thing you ever do. But um, like you know, using keywords to identify what you like, and then building that. So one of the things that I work towards is to demystify and take the wank out of cheese, and that's um, what we've done with our book. Because there's like, yeah. Cheese- so say, tell everyone what your book's called and when it's coming out. Uh, it's called The Best Things in Life: A Cheese, and it's coming out on Halloween, October thirty first. And it's the Stud Siblings. Stud Siblings book. So it's a it's a it's written by you and your sister. Written by me and my sister. So it's a it's to be a hundred percent honest with you. It was a manifestation of my sister. She's a bit spiro when it comes to that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and she put it out to the universe that she wanted to write. Well, we wanted to write a book. Um, and then a week later we got contacted by a publisher, which is Plum Publishing. They've been great, and they it was amazing. They're like write a book and we're like, shit. So yeah. what's the elevator pitch? It's like about... 
It's an incomplete but delicious guide to cheese. Look, there's there's hundreds of amazing cheese books out there. Out there. They're information dense and they're fucking boring. Like, unless, you, <laughs> in, unless you're me, like, who's genuinely, like, obsessed with cheese. Yeah. You're going to pick it up and be like, oh, this is this is a lot to you know lot to absorb. So the the idea that the concept that we had is that we want it to be like fun, approachable, um, and with no wank. Yeah. And it's not to say there's not great cheese books out there. There definitely is, but like to sort of bring a younger voice to it or a more accessible voice. Yeah, because I do think that like cheese is delicious. Everyone loves it. Everyone probably wants to know more about it. But it yeah. is like it is a bit of like a wanky, rich you know, white dude world, you know what I mean? And so like, it does make you feel like a bit of a, you don't want to ask those questions. Like what is, you know, what is the difference between brain camp? Like, you know, you feel like an idiot just trying to get started. For for me, cheese is a little bit like wine and Mm. like people sometimes use that. I don't think intentionally, but we'll like throw around words or, you know, use it as a sign of prestige. And I think that that cheese is accessible for everyone and should be, and it's fucking delicious and the stories are fun and it's a gateway into the culture of where it's from. Do you have to spend a lot of money on cheese to get a good cheese? No. Uh, Hot tip, buy less and buy buy less, if that makes sense. (laughs) Like like one of the quotes in our book, and trying to find the origin of this quote was, was really hard, but uh, two things I learned as an adult is um, everyone does cocaine and cheese is fucking expensive. That's um, kind of true. It is really true. <laughs> but um, the one thing... Or I'll, has done. Or has done. Has done. The has done. Yeah. Um, but one of the things is is that cheese should be accessible. Like, you know, everyone's like, why is cheese so expensive? And, and when you look at the inputs and the amount of time and effort that goes in, like, I can't believe how cheap it is. Mm. Um, but cheese is expensive, but it's cheaper than a bottle of wine. So mm. you don't have to, you can, you, can, you can get a good cheese selection for 20 bucks. Yeah. And what would, you, what's your go-to if you're going to a dinner party and you're in charge of bringing the cheese? What's your, like, just never fail, m- most cloud, crowd pleasing, like, you Dreamy, know. creamy. Uh, mine would probably be Briat Savran. Uh, so Briat Savran was an 18th century food critic. He was a bit of a bigot. He was the gentleman that said, I'll show you what you eat and I'll show you who you are, which I kind of agree with. Mm-hmm. But he also was the fellow that said, <clears throat> uh, a meal without cheese is like marrying a beautiful woman with one eye. I don't think you can get away with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it was a cheese that was developed, but it's a lactic set cheese from the Champagne region. It's a triple cream cheese. So what that means is, if you took all the um, the fat out, 75% of what would be left would be fat. So it's the cheese of indulgence. Yum. The one that we select has got this really dreamy, creamy, um, lactic finish, and it's got a special yeast on it called geotrichum, which is a non-industrial mold. Anyway, that's a whole bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Yeah. All you need to know is you get that, you take a bite of it, you let the fat coat your mouth, then you take a bottle of bubbly. And you take a sip, champagne preferably, but bubbly, and you let the effervescence cut through, and then it's the most amazing um, mouthfeel. And, like, if you go to a potluck, you can just buy that. They're normally, like, 25 bucks. Yeah, right. You bring it. You don't have to do anything. Everyone thinks you're and amazing. And everyone thinks you're just, like, super fancy. Actually, what you mentioned is a chaser is important, a cheese chaser, isn't it? Mm, I don't know. It depends on what context. I think cheese, so for me anyway, I think that the cheese should be the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you I, would say that. Yeah, of course it would. <laughs> it's in my vested interest. Um, 
But no, no, I really believe if you spend money on non-industrial cheese, you really get an amazing flavor profile. You don't need to do a pairing. Mm -hmm. If you are doing a pairing, it's pretty easy. Like you want either contrast, crunch, or what grows together goes together, that sort of thing. Oh, that's a smart one. So like what would be an example of that? Like Uh, if you want figs, what would you have? Figs in Saganaki are really good. Have you ever had oh, that with honey? Yeah, I think I had that in um in Greece. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. I'd never had Saganaki. That was mind-blowing. Like I had like a steak of it with this honey and this light battery. It's so easy. I was like, yeah, it was orgasmic. Yeah. Wildly. Cheese can be orgasmic. Yeah. Um, it was intense. Okay, so fig. And then what else? What's another one? My, well, the champagne and the Briette Savran. Mm-hmm. Um, Comte de and wines from the Jura. If you want some weird pairings, yes. um, Comte de and filtered coffee is really good. Oh, really? Or oolong tea um, oh. for non-alcoholic ones. Uh, like aged kudus and dark chocolate are pretty amazing. Really? That does not feel like that goes to me. I, yeah, try it. Delish. Okay. Don't knock it too. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. I love cheese. I love all cheese. But I was going to say um, probably one that I would stay away from, which I saw your sister Ellie <laughs> tried. The maggot the cheese. The maggot cheese. Now, I'll just, I don't know if you, can Can you tell us a little bit about that? or She would know a lot more than me. I, I've, I've never uh, experienced it. What I do know is that they do encourage the maggot growth and they mature it in. Well, it, it, they say it's it's katsumatsu. Katsumatsu. Katsumatsu, literally Japanese. rotten and putrid cheese. And it's illegal. Yeah, apparently it's it's like banned, prohibited, um, and it's from is it Sardinia? Yeah, I love Sardinia. That's like my favorite place on earth. It's incredible. Apparently, it's got really expensive since White Lotus. Oh, really? Is Why? White Lotus film there? Oh, no, that's that? um, that's maybe they're making one there. No, no it was. That out. Um... I reckon I lied. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't in Sardinia. No. Well, someone told me that at the pub. Sardinia looks like WA. That's what it looks like. Really interesting history there. It's where they had a slave uprising and they killed all the Romans. Oh, really? Got books about it. Well, it's just such interesting energy, and the food was insane. Like suckling pig, like um, just yeah, incredible cheeses. But yeah, I didn't come across this rotten cheese. Look, I think I think it's reserved, and it's almost like got the shot factor. Um, but one of the things I do find interesting, and and playing into the cheese again, obsessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that cheese is often a reflection of place. So when you go to Sardinia, the cheese is, you know, Sardinia is hot and spicy and the yes. cheeses are hot and spicy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, bitey. Yeah. Yeah. And the people are bitey, you know. Like, yeah. oh, of course you eat that, you know. Oh, my God. I went running and I saw, like, so many snakes every day. Like, I, Yeah, but they're all not poisonous because it's it was isolated so they don't have any venom. But there was, there was like, I would go running and, I, and they weren't scared of me. I'd just kind of have to hop over them and keep going. I yeah. find that really hard. Hopping over the snakes. <laughs> well, once I knew they weren't poisonous, I was like, "Oh, just don't chase me." Um, but it does. It really feels like Australia, which is really interesting. Isn't that wild? Yeah, and it's got gum trees everywhere. Introduced eucalyptus, though. yes, but it, because it's the sounds and like the cicada sounding. I don't know. It was beautiful. It was stunning. I haven't been there uh, for ages. Yeah. Well, I would go back anytime. Um, well, yeah. I'm I'm not in a rush to eat maggot cheese, but I want to eat the rest of this. Mm-hmm. So when's your book coming out? Uh, October 31st of this year. So that's a good Christmas present for people It's a listening. fantastic Christmas present. Pre-order's available now. Yeah. And it's available at every good bookshop. <laughs> Shameless self-promotion. What's it called again? 
Best Things in Life are Cheese. Right. I love that title. It's look, it's a really good book. It like it took two and a half years to write. It was a fucking slog. Like it nearly broke me and my sister. We learned so much about each other, but also, you know, there's some nuances that we had to pick up in terms in terms of the cheese world and it's something that I'm genuinely proud of. Like you put that on the table and it's like it's good. We talk about cheese pairings as like well, uh, tasting cheese. We refer to it as like sex. It's all about touch, taste, and feeling. Oh, so that's, that's a fun way to like interact with it. And then there's also like, you know, with pairings like swipe left, swipe right. So it's like a, it's an it's an e- it's an easy book to digest and understand. The irony is though, if there's, if I ate too much cheese, that's sex is the last thing I feel like doing. <laughs> that's why you're having sex while you're tasting the cheese. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Look, one thing. Uh, moderate everything in moderation. Everything in moderation, including moderation. But I often find that if I eat hard cheese, you can go before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know. It is. It's just something about the softness. It's so indulgent. Cheese is indulgent. It is. Well, um, thank you, Sam. I'll put all the links to your book and where people can find you. Thank you. Thank you for Fun coming. Chance. Thank you for spending this time with yourself and the soft and curious. If you enjoyed, please rate and review this episode and share it with your friends. It's how we grow. I hope you're feeling joyful and kind. This episode was made on Bundjalung Country. It was produced and presented by me, Jessica Lay, and technical production and arrangement by Podpaste. Thank you to Blueberry Music Studio, where we record. Thank you.